Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for this day. I'm thankful for your presence here with us. I'm thankful for your presence here in worship. I'm so thankful for JR and for Tammy and for Clara and their whole family just um, letting your spirit work through them to draw us into worship of you, Lord. And I thank you for giving us voices to praise you. Um, I thank you for being able to listen from the back as we belted out these songs and just and know that you are among us. So thank you, Lord. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would be with us and, and be on me, Lord, as I, um, as I communicate your word, uh, as I try to speak about you um, and help me to do justice to what you are about in here, Lord, in your word. And be with us and open our hearts up to what you're telling us. Open our hearts up so that we can listen and bring in and put into practice uh, the things that you have to share with us. Uh, Father, so that we can be drawn further into your love and so that we can live in your love and so that we can believe in you and let that belief drive our lives. And so, God, we commit this time to you. Amen. Amen. So the church in Philippi has a problem. Um, And what we find, like most... uh, like, like most reasons that the letters in the New Testament exist is because they're having interpersonal conflicts. I'll just put it that way, okay? I don't know if you realize that, okay? But, but, but honestly, if churches were not messy, we wouldn't have a New Testament, okay? We, we would have like the four Gospels and Acts, and that'd be it because everybody's got it down, okay? But people don't have it down, Being ordinary people that are being drawn in by the extraordinary grace of an amazing Savior is messy. It is messy. It always has been. It always will be. And the church in Philippi is no exception. Okay? And and the particular conflict that they're dealing with revolves around two very, very prominent people in the congregation, one is named Iodia, one is named Syntyche, okay? Um, just if you're looking for baby names, okay? It's just out there. Probably not going to find a whole lot of Syntyches out there, just letting you know. But, I mean, these, and these are not bad people. These are actually, like, everything that we understand about them, they are pillars of the church community. They are servants. They are spoken about in very high fashion by Paul at the same time. And we don't even really know what the conflict is. Paul doesn't even necessarily get into it because, you know, hey, you're not writing these things to air dirty laundry. You're writing these things to correct a problem. What we know is that some point, at some point, there is a disagreement between the two of them in the church that has gotten so out of hand that it's created an unofficial center aisle right down the middle of the congregation. And you're either on Team Iodia or you're on Team Syntyche. Churches can't function very well like that. You can't be the church when you're actually two churches trying to occupy the same space. And so Paul writes about Christ's selfless sacrifice. He writes about his attitude of, of, of laying his life down and making himself less and does, you know, he's, 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 he's working at it from all these different angles before he even names the problem. 
And then after he names the problem, he continues to kind of talk about, here's some advice, here's some practical advice for how to work through this so that you can be the church again, okay? And he talks about a lot of different things. He, he, he names a lot of different things. We know probably his most famous one in Philippians chapter 4 is, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. We know that one. That one has a lot of power for us, okay? Whatever your situation in life, rejoice in the Lord. But then he follows it up with this. And I, I think maybe we, we, we miss this one. It, or at least we don't see it as much or we don't think about it as much. Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4.5 says this, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Now, I don't know what your Bibles look like right there, okay? But if you're looking at your Bible, do you, do you have a period there? Let your gentleness be evident to all, period. The Lord is near, period. Okay. Hey, guess what? English. Oh, man. What are we going to do with ourselves? There's a real running conversation because there's no punctuation in between these two things when it originally gets written down or at least the oldest stuff that we have that has it written down, there's no punctuation in between these two things. It just says, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Well, what do you do with that? Okay, I mean, because you can go kind of a couple of ways with that, all right? Either, either, and this is kind of the way that, we, that, that, that maybe a lot of our Bibles have come down on it, is let your gentleness be evident to everyone because the Lord is near in your life. It's for, you know, the Lord is giving you the ability to be gentle. Is that true? Absolutely. But here's the thing. <laughs> a lot of us think that there probably shouldn't be any punctuation in there because really what he's saying is, let your gentleness be evident to everyone around you that the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evidence of the Lord at work in you. See how that flips it around? God is not only the source of our ability to become the fruits of the Spirit that we've been talking about, and to become the image of Christ, Jesus. Okay, God's not just the fuel behind that. His grace is not just the fuel behind that, but doing those things, being those things, becoming those things, that is actually the witness that we have to the world around us. In a world that is struggling with so many different understandings of how to relate to people well, be assertive. Stand up for yourself. Don't be a doormat. You know, say what needs to be said. If somebody gets hurt, meh. You need to say what you need to say. You do you. Okay? I mean, throw in all of those ideas, okay? You've got that coming at you. You also have this coming at you. Don't offend anybody. Okay? I, I don't know if, if there's a non-offensive Canadian gene. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I'm a transplant, okay? I admit I am speaking out of ignorance here, Okay? I, I, don't, I don't know. 
I don't know if it can be determined with a blood test. I, d- I don't know. Okay, but it seems to be interwoven into the cultural DNA of political correctness, correctness and non-offensiveness and politeness. And one of the cardinal sins of our culture is to both be non-assertive and to offend someone. And that makes understanding how to actually like relate with people well very interesting, very messy. It's messy in your workplace. It's messy in your peer groups. It's messy on the internet. Don't just don't even go on the internet, okay? Like just don't just don't even try to relate to people on the internet. Relate to people in real life. It's easier, okay? But but for some reason we go out on the internet and we try to do it and it's and it's really messy there, okay? It's messy in our families. Doing this thing where we're ordinary people being called in and brought in by the extraordinary grace of an amazing Savior is messy. It is hard. And God gives us the gift of gentleness as a way to navigate that. But I don't want us to confuse gentleness with just being polite. I don't want us to confuse gentleness with just being courteous. I don't want us to confuse gentleness with something that is a cultural standard for everyone around us because that is not what God is talking about, okay? I'll just be honest. Our cultural standards may have pieces of them that reflect God to a greater or lesser degree, but our cultural standards did not originate with God. Our cultural standards come from our own experiences and our own frailty. And so sometimes they reflect God well, sometimes they don't reflect God well. But God is driving at something deeper when he talks about gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness as something that is driven by his Holy Spirit is going to have a different mindset. And it is going to be approached differently than mere politeness or courteous or political correctness or non-offensiveness. Otherwise... We have nothing to offer to the people around us that they cannot get at Kiwanis or Rotary Club or anything. There's nothing distinct about us. The church just becomes a country club or a social club or a humanitarian effort. And that's not what we are. We are people who are revealing the power and the presence of God to the world around us. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near to them. Okay, what does that look like? Let's go over to John chapter 21. Okay? Because if we're, if we're going to talk about gentleness, and we're talking about being gentle like Jesus is, okay, we are not talking about powerlessness We are not talking about being passive or being dominated. We are not talking about meek and mild in the terms that we think of them culturally. Okay, we are talking about about looking at Jesus who knows how to use the power that he has been given by God well. Okay, and he does it using a word that we have really, again, English. Ah, we've messed it up. Okay, he does it 
using a word that we've really messed up in our English language. He condescends. Okay? Now, when I talk to you about being condescending, what do you think of? You think of me being a jerk, don't you? Admit it. It's okay. All right? It's all right. I'm, I'm okay. All right? Maybe you've even seen me be condescending, and if you need to talk to me about it after church, let's do that, okay? Because, hey, guess what? I am sometimes. I can be. But we tend to think of condescension as something associated with arrogance or sarcasm, okay, using a condescending tone. I'm, I'm, sure, that I, I'm sure that we would call it mansplaining now, okay, something like that, right? Obviously, I know more than you. Obviously, I am smarter than you. Obviously, I am better than you, but I am going to deign to come down to your level. Aren't you thankful? Right? That, that's what we think of, right? Okay. But the root of this word is a selfless act that originates with the grace of God itself. It is an intentional willingness to lower ourselves down to come underneath someone else in order to exalt them. It is the exact opposite of what we've made it. It and in, that, and in that vein, Christians should be the most condescending people in the whole world. Work on the presentation of that. Um, anyway, but, but you understand what I mean. If, if we're really believing this gospel, if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we should be people that are constantly striving to come to lower ourselves willingly And to come underneath people in order to exalt them in our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts, in our actions. Before Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and takes on the dirtiest, lowest job in the household for all of his disciples, it says Jesus knew that God had given everything to him. He had placed all power under Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus do with it? He willingly lowers himself down to the lowest place in order to get underneath the people around them and lift them up. And then he turns around and he says, okay, if I'm your teacher and I do this for you, then this is how the world is going to know that you know me. And this is how the world is going to know what I'm about and what my father is about. This is how the world is going to know who God is. Are you willing to live like this? Because this is what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus, of course, you know, is talking about heavenly things. And, and Peter, this is in John 13, of course, Peter is Peter. Peter's always going to, Peter's that kid in your classroom who's always like, oh, me. I know the answer. Me, 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 me. And he's jumping up and down. He's like, Of course I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus goes, Peter, I don't think you understand what that means right now. You think that means that you're going to strap on a sword and we're going to go kill some Romans tonight. And that's not what I'm getting ready to do at all. And he's like, no, 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 seriously. If everybody else deserts you, I will 
lay down my life for you. And Jesus very poignantly tells him, and he goes, where I'm going, you can't follow right now. You will later, but you can't right now. Trust me. When the going gets rough, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows the next morning. I promise you. And we move to the, we move to the seed and outside the garden. And Jesus looks like he's in control of the whole situation in like John 19, John 20. Peter keeps trying to make a revolution happen that's not going to happen. Peter doesn't even know how to use a sword, we can tell, because you use your sword with your right hand, okay? And, uh, and what does he end up doing? He cuts, off the guy's, he cuts off the guy's ear, okay? He cuts off the guy's, like, left ear, okay? So think about it. Your right hand, okay? Left ear, okay? If you're going to use a sword on a guy to take him out... You're not going to do some wild, you know, like you're not doing, like, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's trying to make stuff happen. He's like, yes, I will do this. And Peter's whole world just kind of starts to crumble as he realizes that Jesus really meant when he said, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he keeps trying to stay near to Jesus, Okay. This unnamed beloved disciple and John actually gets him into the courtyard because somehow this beloved disciple knows the high priest. He's got connections in high places. So Peter ends up getting into the courtyard and around a charcoal fire manages to do exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Manages to fail miserably, not just once, but three times. Here's the rooster crow, runs off. He runs back to the empty tomb a few days later. He runs in. He sees the burial cloth all folded up. He walks out. We still don't know what's going on in Peter's mind at that point. Just kind of walks off in a daze. Okay? And then we get to John 21. Let's walk through John 21 real quick. John 21 starts with the disciples. This is post-resurrection. This is post-appearance. This is post kind of the big climax where, you know, Thomas, you know, Jesus invites him to put his hands into the prints of the nails and put his hand into his side. And Thomas doesn't even need to do that, even though he said he was going to do that. As soon as he sees it, he drops to his knees and says, my Lord and my God, it's this amazing climactic thing. And you have, you know, kind of this last piece and you kind of go, that's a great way to wrap up the gospel. And then there's another chapter. It's almost like one of those Marvel cutscenes after, like, in the middle of the credits. Where you're like, I thought this was over. Oh, wait, there's another chapter? Okay. Because we still don't know what's going on with Peter. We still don't know where he lands in all this. And so they're back in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to go fishing. This is not an excursion. This is not like, this is not, I'm going to go cast a line into the water because I want to relax. This is, I don't know what to do with my life now. I know he's risen. I saw the confession of Thomas, but 
Thomas didn't do what I did. Thomas didn't betray him. Thomas didn't Thomas didn't say I'll lay my life down for you and then deny that he ever knew him. And I don't really know what else to do, so I'm going to go fishing. And the other six guys that are with him say, okay, you know, we'll help you. And so they get out in the boat, and then Jesus is on the shore. Jesus also brings breakfast, by the way, which is awesome. Love that. I have a new favorite, I have a new favorite passage. It's John chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. It's a great passage. I love it. Very theological. <laughs> but he but he does this, hey, how's the fishing going out there? Peter's like, terrible. He says, throw your net over on the other side. And they get this big haul, right? And all the disciples are true to form in this, okay? The beloved disciple is the first one to recognize Jesus and goes, hey, that's not just a guy out there. That's the Lord. And Peter is also true to form. Okay? Wraps his cloak around him real quick and then jumps in the water with all his clothes on and swims to shore. And then leaves the other guys to take care of the fish and the boat and everything like that, right? Because he's Peter. Makes sense. And they get in there and they have breakfast. And, and this is where we really get into the gentleness of Jesus, okay? First, I think it's interesting. Jesus sits down with them for a breakfast around a charcoal fire. John makes a real point to say, it's a fire of charcoal. Why does he do that? Because it's around a charcoal fire that Peter said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And now it's around a charcoal fire that restoration is going to start taking place again. And Jesus takes Peter to the side and just says, hey, do you still love me? And Peter says, yeah. And he says, okay. Remember, remember how I said, remember back in the day when we were talking and I talked about being the good shepherd that doesn't, that doesn't run away? You know, the hired hand, you know, runs for the hills when the going gets tough, but the good shepherd sticks with the sheep and lays his life down for the sheep? I want you to do that now. And you'd think it would be like, okay, lesson learned, I got it, okay? But then Jesus comes back again and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you can just see the wheels starting to turn in Peter's head. He's like, I already said yes. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, then I want you to take care of my lambs. Okay, Jesus. And then Jesus comes back a third time and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, and Peter was hurt. 
Hmm. Being gentle with people doesn't mean that they don't get hurt sometimes. Being gentle also doesn't mean avoiding saying to people what they need, they desperately need to hear in order to grow and be like Jesus because you're worried about getting them hurt. Some of the best things that I have been told about how to follow Jesus are the things that hurt me the most when they were told me, told to me. But they were the best things. They were the things I needed to hear. They were the things I needed to know. Right? And Peter gets hurt because he's missing the point. Okay? See, we think of repentance, we think of repentance, and, and for us, repentance is this idea of changing our minds and changing direction and saying, okay, I was doing this thing, I'm not going to do it anymore, now I'm going to do this thing instead. That is not a Jewish understanding of repentance. A Jewish understanding of repentance doesn't just move forward, it moves backward too. Repentance is not just about changing the future. Repentance is about redeeming the past too. That's why when Zacchaeus comes to know the Lord in Luke and he says, from now on, I'm going to be like this. And then what does he immediately follow it up with? And anybody I've cheated out of money, I'm going to repay him with interest. True repentance is not just about changing direction for the future. It's also about redeeming the past. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And so Jesus has literally sat down in his poignant, loving way and asked the questions that Peter must answer. He may not want to answer it. He may be hurt by the fact that he's having to go through it. If I was denying Jesus that way, it would hurt terribly, and I would not want to talk about it. But Jesus brings him in and says, will we redeem this? I want to. Okay. Will we redeem this? I want to. Okay. Will we redeem this? Ah, I want to. All right, let's move forward. Jesus loves Peter enough to go to the heart of the matter with him. And sometimes that hurts. And the challenge for us is that a lot of times when we're willing, if we love people enough to go to the heart of the matter with them, not just in an arbitrary way, you can't do this outside of relationship, okay? So if you're trying to go to the heart of the matter with somebody that you don't have good relationship with that doesn't really know that you love them, don't take this advice right now, okay? If you're just, you know, like, you know what? I really don't know you, but let me get to the heart of the matter with you. You really need to, that's not gentleness, okay? It's not. It is when we love people enough See, now, the challenge for us here is that often when we go to the heart of the matter with someone, it's for our own satisfaction rather than their redemption. Even if we say it's for their own good, right? 
How many times have, how many times have we said something and went, but that's for their own good, but really it's part of it is because it makes me feel better to put them in their place just a little bit. Even if I use all the right words, even if I use the right tone of voice, even if I do everything right, do it just the way that they tell you to do it. If it's coming from a place of trying to satisfy myself rather than to truly condescend to get underneath that person in order to exalt them, it's not really gentleness, not the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus could have been super direct, but instead he leaves these openings for Peter. He lets Peter draw the meaning out, and he walks with him through the whole process of repentance and redemption. Okay? And then Jesus starts into this little discourse with him. And he says, look, when you were young, you got to go where you want to go, and you got to do what you want to do. But when you're old, someone will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And we're all like, what is he talking about? And stretch your arms out. Okay, Jesus says, look, Peter, when I tell you to feed my sheep and take care of my lambs, you have to remember what I was, what I was willing to do. That went all the way to the cross. And Peter, for you, it needs to go the same direction. Now, we historically understand that Peter was crucified, there's even a certain mythos that Peter felt that he wasn't um, worthy enough to be crucified in the same way as Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. I don't know how that works physically. I don't know how that works. But the point was is that the point that I think people have tried to make with that is that Peter finally got it. He got that the gentleness of Jesus inspires cross-shaped living in his followers. True gentleness has always been my bearing of the cross and the center of its vision, even if it's in being assertive or honest. In my words, in my actions, am I picking up my cross first rather than like looking at you and saying, why aren't you picking up your cross? Or looking at the world and saying, don't you understand what Jesus did for you? <laughs> it's me, myself, first. Picking up my cross and putting it at the center of my vision. Laying down myself for the sake of others. And taking up the person of Christ and how I relate to them. And then the last piece of this is kind of another another little interesting thing, okay? Peter obviously doesn't like this little allusion to crucifixion, okay? It's unsettling. You know, basically it was like, remember how I died? That's how you're going to die. Fantastic. Can't wait. So excited. And then he realizes that the other disciple is around. And he says... What about him? You know my future. What's his future? And Jesus lovingly kind of goes, don't get distracted by that, please. Please don't get distracted by that. You follow me. Remember how I said 
where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will later. Later's now, Peter. Follow me. Gentleness refuses to be distracted by comparisons. We could spend our whole lives basing our gentleness on the relative attitudes of other people. You know, do unto others as they have done unto you. That's not how that works, right? I, I, think, I think the way Jesus changed that around too was love others not as they have loved you. Love others as I have loved you. I could spend my whole life basing my level of gentleness on how well other people have or have not practiced that toward me. Whether that's, even if I'm giving everybody a hall pass out in the world, I could become a very, very bitter and reserved person just by dealing with how gentle or not gentle people have been with me in the church. Did you know that I once had a person give me a check for money to buy better clothes? With an anonymous note, which doesn't work when you just gave a check. (laughs) Didn't realize that I was jumping up to do a Wednesday night service with the kids right after, or for everybody, right after doing a service project with the kids. So yeah, I've got like mud and stuff like all over me. And then somebody's like, you're leading singing. And I'm like, I am. Oh, crud. And I run up and I do this thing. And then I get this anonymous note with a check. (laughs) We can have good intentions that don't always go so well. And how am I going to base my gentleness toward that? Let me tell you something. I know that person so much better than I did when I was 24, 23. We've done a lot more life with that person. Those person's kids are very near and dear to us. We pray for them all the time. We've been through loss of family members together and everything. But if I had based my gentleness on that one event with that person, if I had saw them the way that I wanted to see them rather than the way that God saw them, I would have none of that. That person sent me one of the most heartfelt responses after Emery died. And I am thankful that she did. Our gentleness must not be distracted by others. Our gentleness must be focused on Christ Jesus and the fact that he always looks at people as dearly loved children. And so we are always looking at people as God's dearly loved children, whether they realize that they are or not, whether they're acting like it or not. My kids are dearly loved children. They don't always act like it. I have to consistently see who they are, right? So do we. We must always be seeing people the way that Christ sees them. And out of that flows the power of his gentleness in our words, in our speech, in our thoughts, and in our actions.
Let's pray together. Father, I ask for you to be with us in our witness of gentleness. Lord, we find ourselves in many, many different situations. We find ourselves in many, many different places with many, many different people. And yet, Lord, you've called us to be people of gentleness. People that know that we have the power of your Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us. And yet, your son did not see that power as something to cling on to, but he willingly made himself nothing for the sake of other people. Lord, help us to have that confidence. Help us to see ourselves the way that you see us so that we aren't anxious and we don't try to hold on to power and we don't try to let anxiousness rule our thoughts or our speech or our actions. Lord, instead, let your gentleness rule in us. May we be people who, like your son, are willing to go down in order to come under other people and exalt them as your children. And may that be our witness to the world. Amen.